As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. today. Um, if you were with us last week, you remember we had uh, Holly Amberg on the program. And if you remember, she is an 81-year-old uh, retired photographer uh, out of Albuquerque, New. Uh, excuse me, she's in uh, Arizona. And <clears throat> she discovered uh, what appears to be a lost civilization in the northern deserts uh, of Chile at Atacama Desert. And um, I got an email from her just after the program, and it turns out that she's found another civilization um, uh, further south uh, in that region of the, at that desert. And, you know, it's funny. I, I haven't really talked about Google Earth at all. And Holly used Google Earth primarily not only to find the, uh, the remains of a civilization that has not been identified, that has not been 
researched and excavated. And she's waiting as well as I am. Probably thousands of other people are waiting to see what has been found out there. But her primary source, Holly's primary source of investigation was a tool uh, that Google Earth offers for free. And if you don't know anything about Google Earth, I really suggest that you get on your computer and check it out. It was developed originally for the CIA. <laughs> uh, and <clears throat> it's a tool that takes uh, software, the systems built into um, satellites and converts it into an easy to use system for uh, the viewer to see the, uh, the surface of the earth from miles above the ground. Now, I, I have been using Google Earth for a number of years. I use it when I'm interested in looking at a ruin, for me primarily in uh, Central America, the Maya area, and uh, a lot of the old, old, uh, old Mexican areas of, of Central America. And <clears throat> you got to check it out because what you can do is you can actually zoom in to up to a few hundred feet above uh, buildings and landscapes and uh, <clears throat> agricultural areas. And what Holly did is she was just kind of playing around with it. And she, she, she discovered uh, what she now calls Nuevo Albergas, New Albergas after her name. Um, by just uh, scanning sections of the desert, um, checking out uh, uh, areas of interest, and then focusing down on them. And <clears throat> the tool is such that not only did she make significant discoveries, but there's been a number of actual academic archaeologists uh, who have found uh, – new pyramids, new pyramid areas, new structures in uh, Egypt, uh, un unknown uh, regions of agriculture in uh, African, African uh, area, Africa areas, uh, as well as <clears throat> um, structures uh, in South America. Um, and so it's a free software application. All you have to do is download it. You don't need a lot of uh, uh, memory. Uh, you do need a little bit of computing power, so your CPU, your processing application needs to be uh, at least the latest. Uh, I, I, I think if, you, if you're running Windows 7 <clears throat> and you're processing data through that, I think that's pretty good. But um, maybe an earlier uh, application, uh, software application would be fine for that. Uh, Windows 8 is what a lot of people are, are running. I don't like Windows 8. I like Windows 7 just because it, it runs a little seamlessly. It doesn't have so many pop-ups. But when you look at um, the Earth from a satellite's point of view, it's a very different place. And on a personal note, I have found unusual formations um, – in known ruins like uh, Chichen Itza, which is a very famous Mayan ruin in northern Yucatan, Mexico, um, is only been excavated about 15%. So 15% of the of the main buildings have been consolidated 
and uh, cleaned up and, and uh, are available for viewing. But there's huge areas that surround those consolidated areas that have not been excavated. And that goes for most of the Mayan ruins uh, in, in, in Central America and in Utah, Yucatan specifically. Um, they will go, will go the uh, archaeologists uh, will go after the areas that are most prevalent, most easy to, to see uh, and excavate and reconstruct those areas. But th there's a lot that's underground uh, and the unique part of seeing these areas from a satellite perspective is they give off signatures. And when I say signatures, there's surface reliefs. There is um, patterns that are not discussed in a lot of journals because they don't recognize them. They're not looking at them from an elevated point of view. So, um, you know, if you get a chance, download the software, uh, pick an area that you're interested in, and uh, zoom down from 10, 20 miles above to um, closer to the surface and see what you find. You might, you might find uh, something that is uh, unique. <laughs> and then you may, like Holly, uh, be able to uh, proclaim your discovery. But it's just something else. I and mean, uh, it's just something else to check out. It's a, it's a new way to explore. Um, you know, it's, it's going beyond the boundaries of convention. And um, I strongly urge you to check it out. So, um, so yeah, satellite, satellite ex exploration is very cool. Um, Mike Barra, last week, Mike was uh, our featured presenter. Um, his book is now out on, uh, uh, it's digitally available, uh, Ancient Aliens and Sacred Societies. Uh, strangely enough, it seems like the term ancient aliens was something the publisher put on there because there isn't a great deal of talk about aliens. Uh, and we all know how I feel about this discussion of aliens uh, in ancient history. Um, but I really urge you to check that book out. Um, I had a chance to look in it a little deeper and his uh, references to the moon and the Mars and some of the artifacts that he lists in the book are fascinating and, and currently up to date. Um, and yes, um, there is archaeology on the moon. There is archaeology on Mars. And although it's not discussed officially, uh, we know from Dr. Brandenburg in our discussions that uh, NASA does know they exist but is unwilling to divulge the information. So uh, uh, as independent researchers, as curiosity seekers, we, we have to kind of look at it uh, on our own, go above and beyond what the official statements are. Um, regarding the moon and regarding Mars. So anyhow, Mike Bear's book, Ancient Alien, Aliens and Secret Societies is, is a great read. And I, I strongly urge you to um, have a look at it. As always, I'm, I'm encouraging everyone to check out the uh, Facebook page, uh, Earth Ancients Facebook. Um, there is um, uh, constantly 
se sections constantly being updated. Um, I posted a, uh, a unique article on sexy human in, in Peru, which is just above uh, Cusco. And uh, there is an article called 10 Ex Incredible Images of Sexy Human You Probably Haven't Seen. And uh, I think you'll see quickly why they are incredible images. Um, some of the stonework is very similar to dynastic Egypt. Um, some of the um, structures are unbelievably precise in their um, development and uh, how they were cut. And above all, uh, there is, according to a number of engineers, some kind of a lost science in the, how these, um, a lot of these stones were cut. Um, they're not cut with anything that we know about. They're not chiseled. They're not uh, sawed with blades. They seem to be cut with high heat or high intensity heat of some kind because there's, there's a, uh, a vitrification or a sheen that's left on a lot of these stones. And uh, this, this brief article, 10 Incredible Images of Sexy Human, um, actually reveals a lot of this uh, masonry, stone masonry that is, is very, very unique. So take a look at that. That was posted. Um, just a few days ago, and uh, it's a good introduction to some of the uh, anomalous uh, construction that is found in in Peru. I have uh, been a person that's sought, um, as a lot of us have in our youth, uh, different levels of consciousness um, and uh, for me I began to um, kind of delve into Eastern philosophy uh, in my early 20s and later started um, experimenting with uh, certain types of meditation techniques and uh, in the uh, early 1980s when I was in um, high school, uh, excuse me, when I was, I, I think I graduated high school, I was in early uh, college, um, there was a lot of drug use. And it was a form of, of uh, experimentation to, I believe, achieve different levels of consciousness for enjoyment. But I think people were also exploring. And I think there was a prevalence in, uh, in America in the 1980s and the early 70s too, where people were seeking ways to access um, consciousness through psychedelics. But there was also a movement of uh, people seeking alternative forms of consciousness through meditative practices, through uh, devotion, through prayer, things like that. And for me, I began studying uh, the works of an Indian sage named Maharishi Meshyogi, who founded Transcendental Meditation. 
which is a, a short as long for uh, TM transcendental meditation. Um, and for me, it was uh, I, I you know I did I smoked the marijuana, I did stuff like that. I I, uh, I admit it, <laughs> but. Uh, it didn't do anything for me. It wasn't. It, it was too. It was too overwhelming, and I needed stuff that was more subtle. I needed a practice that was more subtle. So in my twenties, I started doing a form of meditation, and um, for me, it was a great relief for stress. Um, and into my adult life, um, I continued the practice, and to this day, I still meditate and find it a way to uh, get through uh, the long days, the, the stress, the, the uh, accumulation of issues around just living. Um, but there's other forms of consciousness. Alcohol, drinking alcohol uh, changes your consciousness. Um, and there's other ways to shift consciousness. Uh, uh, we know that um, Graham Hancock has written extensively on using uh, not only cannabis but other more powerful levels of of uh, consciousness changing drugs to uh, to shift out of our daily awareness and to look through the eyes of these enhancers to see what the reality is, what different realities come about. And my guest today has written a book about higher consciousness in the form of myths. Now, this is an interesting book because um, what they propose, the author proposes, is that the ancients were able to create myths and through the reading of the myths, and we'll find out specifically, I'm just giving you my quick interpretation. We'll, we'll bring our uh, author on here in a second. But it appears to me that there are other forms of consciousness development, consciousness access uh, that, the, the, that the ancients knew that we really don't understand. And um, my guest today is Paul uh, Boudreau, who is a uh, ecologist, biologist, and has studied ancient myths and traveled uh, extensively uh, through uh, the Middle East and has studied the Egyptian temples. And Paul and his co-author Lloyd Dickey uh, have written a book called Awakening Higher Consciousness, Guidance from Ancient Egypt in Sumer. And um, it's, it's unique to think about. I mean, uh, a lot of this program, Earth Ancients, is based on an interest on ancient Egypt, ancient Sumer, um, and a lot of the uh, wisdom that they left us. But it's there's so much of this wisdom we just don't know about. Um, and so um, today we're going to talk about consciousness in from the eyes of the ancients. And welcome to the program, Paul. Hello, Cliff. How are you? Great. Now, um, you're calling from where now? Where? What part of the world are you located at? I'm on the other side of the continent, on the uh, east coast of Canada, somewhere north of, uh, say, Boston, over in Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
Nova Scotia, right. And how uh, – I'm here in California. How's the weather there these days? Are you guys having normal weather, or is it uh, odd like a lot of the states here? Uh, we're in the one blue spot on the NASA charts. We're, we're, we've had a cold winter, but today the daffodils are out and it's 50 degrees, which for our, our neighborhood is really quite pleasant. Oh, excellent. Glad to hear it. So this is an interesting book. Um, what was uh, your yours and uh, Lloyd's uh, uh, motivation to write a book on uh, higher consciousness? I'm just curious because in your early part of your book, there's images of you and Lloyd uh, around the Great Pyramids uh, and other structures. I, I, I'm curious as to what would motivate uh, an academic scientist like you guys to do something like this, to write something like this? Um, I think we'd have to go back to our, our childhood, and I know we're going to come back to consciousness and relate that to early experience. But um, Lloyd and I, we, we've worked as marine ecologists, and we've spent many days at sea uh, studying uh, fish off of North, the North Atlantic coast and uh, various scientific studies. But we both... Uh, discovered in our conversations that we've had some some sort of childhood experiences where we heard these heard stories and nursery rhymes that just i don't know they just didn't make sense and, and i guess in some ways uh, sort of just in, started that flow of, of thought of what could they possibly mean um you know i mean take the garden of eden which we write about in our book i mean what, why, why would a story about naked people in the garden be passed down for 5,000 years, and why would I care? So the, the, the original beginnings of our, our curiosity went back well before we met, and uh, once we got together and uh, had time in the back of a fishing boat or, or sitting in, uh, on the west bank of Egypt, we just sort of encouraged uh, each other to sort of explore uh, really what could be behind these myths that, that really didn't make sense to us. Um, you know, even nursery rhymes. I don't know if you you had the chance to, to sing nursery rhymes when you were a kid, but I remember singing the nursery rhyme "Ring Around the Rosie." Uh, do you know that nursery rhyme? Oh, sure, yeah, of course. Right. Well, it was many years late, later. I found out. Well, it, it came from the Great Plague in the mid 1600s, and you, I, here we are still singing that nursery rhyme without having that connection of well, why would be why would we be singing about the Great European Plague? Mm -hmm. so that 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 showed that, that myths do have this power to carry this information forward. Our challenge is to figure out well what does it mean to us today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what was the importance of myths created by the ancients? Uh, was it for to carry down certain kinds of information? Um, was it? Uh, a form of teaching that was used and and and, and uh, I mean what did you guys discover well early on we um, you know obviously we were talking about myths and, and Lloyd certainly has had the interest in Egypt for many years and, and introduced me to it and um, we were kind of struck at how the early explorers uh, Sort of labeled. Let's talk about the Egyptian myths for a, a second. But labeled the Egyptian myths spells or incantations or uh, in a very derogatory, dismissive way. And they were a product of their time, much like we are of our time. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm not surprised that they did that. But I see that we're still trying to get 
past those initial impressions that labeled these myths, the, this what what is in fact great literature. That it was labeled as a you know, throwaway, not of importance. Uh, and and so uh, the more we looked at it, the more we found we could relate those myths to what we are today, and not just ancient myths of ancient times with you know, gods throwing thunderbolts and, and you know, all the, all the classical sort of myth kind of things. But the more we looked and the more we dug into some of the early literature, it, it became obvious to us that it really was trying to provide a language to, to themselves as to what they were, how could they, how could they in, in, engage in life and, and, uh, and, and engage in consciousness. So this fascinated us, of course, and, and that sort of set us on a, a path to sort of explore ancient Egyptian, Sumerian, the Hebrew myths, etc. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it came up very naturally, and uh, we're still working on it today. Okay, um, you um, reference the work of Schwaller de Lubitsch and uh, his sacred geometry, which is a fascinating read. Of course, John Anthony West, in his book mm-hmm. *Serpent in the Sky*. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is uh, the the greatest recount of his work, uh, Delubich's mm-hmm. work. But did you discover a sacred uh, form of of uh, writing in the hieroglyphs that you uh, discovered and read? And is is this because uh, we're, we're, we're the focus here is consciousness and consciousness rising, uh, higher levels of consciousness. Was there mm-hmm. something that you discovered in these myths that triggers a level of consciousness that we're not aware of, or was it more just for you both the the uh, the recounting of ancient myths that is an important factor? Well, I think I think the best way to capture it, I think I think it's hidden in plain sight. I, I think in in many cases we're familiar with the the images. It's just that we don't address the, the, the images in a way that, that, that it's useful to us. And I mean, as an example, uh, in the book, we talk about four levels of interpretation of myth. Uh, we, we, there's many ways to look at it, but we talk about literal, allegorical, hier- hieroglyphic, and esoteric. And we think, well, uh, we think that all myths potentially have all those levels of interpretation. A good myth has all of those levels. I mean, uh, literal, it's got to be interesting to people to carry it forward. And, and if I may, my you know example that I use with people is, um, you know, a, on the literal level, a wolf is, a, is an animal. A wolf is a wolf. It has sharp teeth. I mean, yeah, one can picture a wolf. But allegorically or figuratively, you know, a, a wolf could be a person who's preying on someone or a person who's a bad influence. So that's a... It's a different level than thinking, you know, there's a wolf in my backyard and uh, and whatnot. The challenge gets uh, comes about when you start getting into the hieroglyphic and, uh, and esoteric, or I guess what Charles Lubitz called the symbolic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to try to get to those deeper meanings uh, on a hieroglyphic level, it's not so apparent what is meant, and and what the person brings to the myth is probably as important as what the myth conveys one has to be engaged so the wolf and red riding hood again another simple myth it, you know is an influence that that caused her life to change it gave her a great loss because poor granny got eaten but it gave rise to maturity and she met the hunter and went on so uh, all myths i think contain these various levels and what we try to do in the book is to 
in some cases we we explore we explore myths that people are familiar with, but other cases introduce new myths that that we can use to look at these various levels. And, and um, the literal is easy. The higher levels are more difficult, much like I guess consciousness. So, uh, but Schwaller Lubitz definitely was a, a huge influence. I mean, uh, his his looking at the Egyptian myths was critical to pulling away from this misunderstanding, false concept that that all the Egyptian wrote about was death. Uh, many people mm-hmm. I talk to, they think, you know, yeah, the, the Egyptians were just a funerary society. And uh, and we don't think so. We, we think that, that they were struggling with uh, developing a language to express the, the higher levels of consciousness that they were aware of. Um, another great influence on, on us has been uh, Jeremy Nadler, Dr. Jeremy Nadler, who wrote a book called The uh, Shamanic Wisdom Restored. And mm-hmm. He looked at the pyramid text. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, but he, he looked at the, the pyramid text as a description of, of not the not, not the development of, of the pharaoh after he died, but Naylor uh, makes a very Jeremy makes a very convincing case to us that they were actually talking about transformation while alive. Uh, what a better what better way to capture this whole concept of describing awakening higher consciousness is to you know uh, passage through the netherworld passage through the dwarf so um do, do we find something secret or sacred i i think it's there and we just have to we have to harvest it and find out how to approach it okay um in uh serpent in the sky john anthony west's book he uncovers an ancient wisdom uh, which uh, Delubish actually uh, reveals as sacred geometry. Did mm-hmm. you discover a, a, a higher level of intelligence in in these myths, uh, a form of intelligence that we can actually uh, uh, detect uh, 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 in the Egyptian uh, interpretation, Egyptian myths? Uh, and we, we, Lloyd and I have played with sacred geometry as well, and it's it's you know the the whole trying to get your head around phi and, and what what that relationship is uh, coming from Florida Lubitz was is still a, an interesting challenge. Uh, again, there's no prescription. I think we we have to take what we can. And uh, again, in the book, we we look at the book of Genesis and we think that there are lessons in, in there that help us appreciate that those creation moments of consciousness, so that. We can help remember for ourselves. A big, big part of our writing has to do with direct experience. So mm-hmm. it's a matter of being within oneself and having the ability to be aware of what's going on. And then the myths can help by providing uh, some some wording that that will help us understand and and be present at that time. Because without words, mm-hmm. it's hard to well, it's hard to to, to see what's going on, uh, whether that's inside us or or outside us. Yeah, so, um, I think that's where the myths play a role. But would you say? Would you say? Would you interpret the the um, the individuals who wrote these myths as highly intelligent, average intelligence, or tapping into a level of consciousness that we haven't achieved yet? Oh boy, that's a good question. I have, I have, I have the utmost respect for them. I mean, their, their ability to capture these thoughts. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, again, go back to the concept of netherworld or the duat, you know, I mean, uh, uh, a, a parallel plane of existence that one travels through to, to become initiated and come back. I mean, uh, we have trouble even today sort of capturing that kind of context. And in the world we live in now, which is very engineered and mechanistic and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we don't have that, that that language that allows us to sit down and talk to one another about this experience. I, I think in the, um, there are cultures in, in the world that still value that, you know, shamanistic uh, development, whereas, you know, it's, it's undervalued in certain Western culture. So, yes, I, I think they were very highly developed. I, I think that although we're separated by 5,000 years, I think we're probably essentially the same people, uh, you know, the same mm-hmm. over evolution. We haven't changed that much. So in our work, to be able to touch what they were touching is, I think, something that's very doable. It just takes time, effort, and <laughs> probably a lifetime of effort for that. But, yeah, they, yeah. I, I think they are us and we are them. But don't you think in our mechanized uh, world, our world with internet access and uh, attention deficit disorders because we're all locked into our smartphones <laughs> that, that we've um, that we've lost something in terms of uh, uh, the ability to achieve a higher consciousness that maybe the ancients had uh, just because of their culture uh, definitely I think they had stronger support for it I mean uh, you know, you see the amazing constructions that the Egyptians did, and, and when you look at some of the writing that, that the Sumerians did, uh, at least 5,000 years later, it, it appears that that sort of cultural support was built into to, to their lifetime. <clears throat> Excuse me, much like now we have cultural support for, you know, indoor plumbing and, and heating, but I think I think there's always challenges, and, and uh, uh, I wish I could capture for myself what my biggest challenge is, but, you know, I mean, uh, even seeing my own operation, you know, well, I want to lose weight, but I want to eat a piece of cake. Well, sometimes I win <laughs> and I don't eat a piece of cake, but sometimes the cake wins. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, yeah. And I'm sure that, that, have, that, that has persisted throughout the ages. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I was fascinated by uh, your study of the myths in this book, and you make an, an interesting statement. You say that uh, uh, myths are an important vehicle in building a civilization. Why don't you explain to our audience what that means? How, how do myths help in building a civilization? Um. Let me let me turn it around a bit, if I may. Let's. Are you familiar with a book by uh, William Sullivan uh, on the Incas? Uh, you mentioned the Incas in your introduction. Oh yeah. To America. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book on on how the Incas Incan myths uh, captured what they were observing in the sky and the precession of the equinox and 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 uh, you know their strong connection with with, with between the myths and, and their and their, con- and the, their observation of the sky. Um, mm-hmm. What what Sullivan does is he he makes the point that this strong connection, this strong belief uh, that they held, actually preconditioned them to be taken over by the conquistadors. Now, I'm not an expert, but I, 
that, I love that image whereby that whole culture was based on something that had predicted an end. And when the strange Spanish guys arrived, the sort of this huge culture allowed it to happen. Whereas in, in pure logic, uh, from 20th century law, 21st century logic, it makes no sense at all. But he, he I think he does an, a, a very good job of, of showing how, in that case, the culture came to an end because of faith and belief. Um, if, I, if I may, the, the Egyptians, people, you know, marvel at the, at the pyramids, which are, you know, fantastic structures. And, uh, you know, I, I still chuckle when people suggest that uh, that they were built by slaves. I mean, it's mind-boggling how one could even suggest that slaves, with you know all the conditions of uh, uh, of slavery, could build such beautiful, perfect constructions. It'd be like making mm-hmm. asking a slave to create a Stradivarius violin. It just doesn't make sense to me. So obviously, uh, to do uh, to build a, a pyramid and, and the temples and, and the tombs in ancient Egypt. Uh, I'm sure required a buy-in from from the average Egyptian right up to the pharaoh. Uh, um, much like you know, we're exploring Mars and we're sending satellites out. That takes the full support of, of our present-day society, which highly values that kind of uh, that kind of construction and that kind of effort. Whereas we. I don't know an alternative. We don't value seeing the sunset as much. Maybe I mean, is that a is that a good example? Uh, you know, yeah. the society makes choices, and and uh, and that those choices can be seen in, in its creations. Interesting. Um, mm. Let's talk about let's talk about some of these very old, if not ancient, myths, uh, and. Um, See where we go here. Um, tell us a little bit about the Sumerian creation myth. Um, uh, that that's a fascinating myth, and and uh, what is uh, is what they what are, what are they hoping to ex- uh, the reader to extract from that myth? If I if I may, Cliff, uh, can I? I'd like to step back just a little bit because I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with Sumer and Sumerian. Can I go okay. for a few minutes and come back to that? Sure. Uh, yeah. One one challenge that that I've had growing up is that in my education, I was taught that present day culture has derived primarily from the ancient Greeks. Does mm-hmm. that sound strange to you? Is it? No, that's uh, that's one of the problems that I have is uh, is that that is supposed to be our inception point in terms of uh, culture. But go ahead. All right. Well, so I mean, democracy is is meant to be coming down from the Greeks. Right. Well, and I, this was always a problem because Lloyd and I were looking at, you know, the, the uh, Egyptians and Sumerians and we're trying to figure out why, why the Greeks, you know, why we were finding, you know, great, we were finding examples of civilization and higher knowledge in, in the earlier times. And the best we can come up with is, is it seems to be that the Greeks get all the credit because uh, we understood Greek. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the Greek and Latin got translated down into to English and whatnot. And the Egyptian and Sumerian languages weren't really even known or understood or, or anywhere, near to, anywhere near close to being decoded until a couple hundred years ago. 
Mm-hmm. And I think this has been this has given a big disservice to both Sumerian and Egyptian because uh, the late the late uh, Greeks sort of certainly were trained in Egypt. Uh, you know, the, the predecessors to Aristotle and Plato, they all went to Egypt and and, and studied from the masters in Egypt. Uh, but of course, they didn't quite pass along all the credit down to the preceding time. So, uh, in terms of, of uh, Sumer, uh, which was 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years BC, mm-hmm. 3,000 years before Greece, what's coming out of the literature now is is a very refi- a highly refined culture, which included making laws, teaching. You know, schools were teaching kids. Uh, their literature was highly evolved, uh, and, and the story of paradise, the concept of paradise, the story of the flood, all go back to Sumer, five thousand years ago. And I think it's a big. I think the, the, there's a lot of uh, benefit in, in going back to, to to some of their actual literature to see how they captured these ideas. Um, yeah, I, I love the intro to your show to the show today on Google Earth. You know, I mean, that's a tool that that you encourage people to use, and I, it's a great tool. Well, uh, there's a tool online now for the Sumerian literature. It's called the Electronic hmm. Textual Corpus ETCSL. You just do a Google or Bing search on ECTSL. It comes E-C-T-S-L. out of ECTSL. Okay, go ahead. Um, it comes out of Oxford University, and it it's got a listing of all of the the known literature from Sumar. So uh, one can go online and, and, and access this information that just didn't exist a couple hundred years ago. Um, the same thing with the, the pyramid text. Uh, again, it's from the same time period, uh, 4,500 uh, years ago, 5,000 years ago, um, the pyramid text. Um, were found inside one of the earliest, uh, some of the very earliest pyramids ever built. Um, a couple hundred years ago, nobody knew what it meant. And now, uh, online, if you do a search of pyramid text online, sorry, I'm a, I'm a bit of a techie geek, uh, pyramid text <laughs> online, and, <laughs> and you can see the actual text, you can see the translation. And so those tools, I think we have to make better use of. And and, uh, mm-hmm. and our book is, you know, obviously our first attempt to try to look at, at at the real the real thing, the real information, the real pictures on the wall. So that those are great resources that, that you know I, I can't say enough about. Uh, we we couldn't have gotten anywhere without that kind of resource. Mm-hmm. So when you go back and, and look at the ETCSL. Um, or, you know, the Sumerian literature, uh, you find a lot of the common themes that I know others have written about. Uh, I don't know if you've had guests on to talk about the origin of the flood story, you know. Those sort of oh, things. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And they, they come from 5,000 years ago. And, um, and so getting back to basics of myth, we contend that myths contain real information. And the real information exists on many levels. And we think that in most myths, many myths, there's some higher level information there that's, that's useful. So you asked about creation myth. <clears throat> well, what, what we, we look at, at, at the creation myths of Sumer and Egypt, but uh, the, 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 um, 
most useful thing that, that I've gotten out of our study of creation that's, is its ability to draw my own personal attention to those moments of awakening, those moments of creation. And I think of creation not in the sense of physical, you know, um, the ground we stand on or even the universe. Um, that's an interesting question. But for me, in studying the Sumerian uh, uh, text, it, it sort of provided a, a, a language to help me understand those moments of awakening. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if you've had one or had them. <laughs> um, but in my life, I've had a number of, of moments when it was like, "Wow, I'm here," and they come up. They often come out of out of nowhere, and they're generally uh, overwhelming. You know, it's like, "Where was I before?" <laughs> Did, would you say that that uh, awareness that you're talking about is that you are a physical being, or is it more just here I am, and these are my surroundings, and wow, it's cool. Well, can you explain that a little bit more? It's got to be both because we, we are both. It's partly, you know, uh, what I'm tasting, what I'm smelling, what I'm what I'm feeling, but also the, mm -hmm. at the same point, feeling more than that. Um, you know, simple example is um, driving down the road late at night and and something happens and all of a sudden it's my God, where was I? And, and here I am and Within seconds, it's over, and I'm yeah, I'm scrambling to, to make sense of it. But uh, but those moments of awakening are, are very powerful moments in my life. And so, the whole idea of creation out of the void, the, the undifferentiated mass, those kind of phrases that we encountered in the Sumerian myths, do a very nice job of capturing for me a memory of what happened before those events, and you know the separation of the water from the earth. Again, these are, are phrases that I found very useful in my own life to say, yeah, those happened, and, and, I, and the phrases help me remember. Interesting. Um, so can we, can we talk a little bit about the Sumerian creation myth and its sure. importance? Um, I'm just, I'd be interested in learning a little bit about uh, what you discovered about that and... Um, how it may how it may uh, trigger consciousness. Well, we we encounter in, in Sumerian creation it's some somewhat of a similar theme as as in the the uh, the Bible Genesis story in terms of uh, you know in the very distant times there was nothing differentiated everything was the same and then you've got something happens something stirs something separates. Um, the earth from the water and from the earth from the heavens. Um, you know, I, we see, we see, we publish an image which again shows this mountain rising out of the water, similar to the Egyptian. Um, you know, we could get into the, 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 the names and whatnot, but, uh, you know, that, the general impression of a void which somehow Start to generate something to me is a very good uh, analogy, a very good uh, description of, of of my own experience of, of of those moments of awakening. Okay. What do you? What do you? Well, I mean, um, 
there, uh, we've had a lot of guests on the program who have spoken about uh, Enki and the other gods and uh, their stories. And, and uh, of course, uh, this gets into uh, uh, the 12th planet, which is uh, mm-hmm. Zechariah Sitchin's work. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm just curious about what you discovered in your interpretations of these myths. Uh, and and uh, from your perspective, how it's a, a, a higher co- level of consciousness in, in either speaking, reading, or interpreting this, uh, this myth. Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm more interested in, in, in my own world, I guess. And, and you know, I, I, I understand that a lot of people look at, at external interpretations of, of, you know, where we might have come from and, and et cetera, et cetera. For me, it, it, it really has to do with describing my development and, uh, you know, finding that analogy for, for, Anne and Enlil, you know, the sweet water and the earth inside of me, I guess, as I got through. So I, I don't, it could be that, that, that these myths are talking about, you know, the external world. But again, we come back to sort of using those words and trying to apply those words to my, in, my those words to my internal world to see if they help me better follow and see what I do. Um, uh, I think that's one of the challenges of, of experiencing higher consciousness, you know, when, uh, again, I was just your, 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 your intro, and I'm not going to confess to anything here, uh, but when one is sober and, and living life in the forest, <laughs> uh, I agree with you, one gets very distracted and overwhelmed when maybe one's using other things, and uh, mm-hmm. that's probably why uh, Hancock strongly work with, recommends uh, strong guidance when, when uh, he's, he's talking about some of the stimulants that he suggested. Um, right. So to, so to taste those other di- dimensions and to be able to work uh, daily on, on trying to contact them, I think, are, are, is a very important task for me. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, or, you know, there, there are many books written on shamans and, and uh, the shaman in the community that's able to uh, regularly or deliberately touch these other levels. Uh, you know, in my my understanding, they are going through this creation quite deliberately in a way that I certainly cannot. Uh, mm-hmm. But I I think that they're they're touching a plane of consciousness that uh, that that the ancient myths have really tried to um, to capture in in their myths, and uh, I think that's partly why some of these stories are still being told 5,000 years later. Mm, interesting. Um, probably the most well-known, if not famous, uh, Sumerian uh, story is the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you have it uh, in your book. And I'm just curious um, uh, what your interpretation of that myth is and um, – and, and, and how it may trigger uh, a sense of the past or the future or, uh, or as human beings, what, what, what is the effect of that? Because it's a fascinating story. It is indeed, and, and for more reasons than just the fact that it was the first flood story from so long ago. Uh, the Gilgamesh story is really a story 
of, I guess, the way we see it is, is the, the balancing of, of two sides of my personality, or anyone's personality. So you've got Gilgamesh, who's half God, and in our general concept of God, you know, and again, thunderbolts on a cloud, uh, we have a difficult time appreciating why Gilgamesh should have so much trouble doing what he's doing. I mean, he, he starts a story and he's causing great havoc. But he really, do, he really doesn't um, become an effective person or a whole person or more a whole person until Enkidu comes in, and Enkidu is the wild, hairy beast from the forest who uh, really is closer to an animal, I guess, than than a, than a, than a human. And once they're they're balanced, once they work together, once they appreciate each other. Uh, they seem to be able to accomplish great things. They they kill the bull of heads and they cut down Humbaba. Um, and so, again, we come back to this whole idea of direct experience and and what that means for me internally in terms of seeing my God side and seeing my Enkidu side. Uh, you know, I've already mentioned the piece of cake. Uh, I I think everybody can can appreciate that. That we're, we're we're not just whole beings. We're not just one. We we have these different sides, and we see Gilgamesh as a as a very important description of of that kind of. It's going to say internal turmoil, but it, it's more than that. The internal blending that can happen, if if we actually balance our, our two sides, they they can accomplish great things. Um, as the story progresses, of course, Enkidu dies, and and. And it's very significant that Gilgamesh, this half god who, who, by all, all intents, for all intents and purposes, should be quite happy, is feeling this strong yearning for immortality. And, and again, that that's. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm aiming for immortality, but I certainly feel more my immortality. So mm-hmm. the final, the final uh, vignette for the for the story is, of course. He is successful. He 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 marshals his his godlike. He he goes across the sea. He gets the flower of immortality, and wouldn't you know it, he falls asleep. And if that doesn't describe my best intentions, I don't know what is. <laughs> it seems um, it seems that uh, uh, a lot of what you're describing is. Uh, is human function and human uh, frailties, and um, is that is that kind of what your your, your uh, the, the the basis of the book is is to is to is to explain the human condition and uh, the importance of understanding the human condition and not just go about your daily nine to five existence uh, to to step about a step above beyond. Just the daily activities of our life, and and why absolutely. the ancients kind of kind of understood that. Absolutely, absolutely. Understand our frailties, but also our potential. You know, mm-hmm. again, again, this whole idea of the Osiris myth is Osiris was was able to travel through the, the netherworld and, and be reborn uh, um, as as a, as a special person in, in the Egyptian culture. So absolutely, uh, Cliff, that's a good summary. Uh, there's so much more for us to see inside of ourselves, and, and the myths provide us with, with uh, some venues to, to actually explore that. I mean, no question, I'm, I'm also interested in, you know, some of the, uh, the other 
studies are going on, you know, about uh, Robert Schock and the Sphinx and Laval and John Anthony West you mentioned and Laird uh, Scranton. I mean, those are those are also interest me. But in terms of our study and our contribution to this whole uh, moving our, our, our understanding of ourselves forward, we look at that personal side and, and how that's seen in the notes as opposed to external uh, external things. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does. Can you, I mean, I like to always give my audience some tools or suggestions uh, based on the book. And of course, we're going to uh, refer uh, people to the book, Awakening Higher Consciousness, Guidance from Ancient Egypt and Sumer. But if you were to give somebody a suggestion or uh, an idea about uh, what you've discovered and, and how they can better um, maybe possibly access uh, uh, the humanity of them uh, of themselves. What would you suggest they do in reading these? I mean, is, is there a suggestion for uh, some reading? Obviously, your book is a good starting point, <laughs> but um, are you hoping that people um, just gain greater awareness? Are, are are you suggesting that by reading these myths, they are uh, in your estimation, tapping into a higher consciousness. I think I think I think that's possible. You you mentioned meditation, and, and I meditate on my own form, and, and I can't I couldn't describe that to anybody else. But you know, reading myths, exploring them, teasing out the personal, the the, the direct experience from them is what I'd recommend, rather than than reading them. Well, before you go to sleep, you're already asleep, but before you go specially asleep at night, um, I, I think there's a, there, there's a real benefit to, to becoming more active in, in, in reading the, these myths as, again, as a literature, as, as, as words. You know, it's fine. If, if I told you that, you know, I had a lovely apple this morning and I bit into a crisp apple and the air was cool, you'd have a sense of what I mean. Mm-hmm. Harder for me to explain. Oh yeah, that was a moment when I was aware. That was a moment when I was more than than I am now. Um, th- that, that discussion is is, is more difficult, and uh, certainly for me, <laughs> you you you've practiced more than I maybe. But um, so that's where I that's what I would recommend is is that that these myths. Uh, are a useful tool to draw you out of your sleep and to actually apply those myths to actually see what's going on in you. Um, um, the Gurdjieff work, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they talk about the many eyes and, and we're not one. And the first challenge for us to, to, to improve is to see all these eyes. Um, it's something we write about in one of our later books, but, uh, um, I have been a marathoner, and uh, one summer, I, like many marathoners, I was trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And um, I took it upon myself to, to count every step as I ran, uh, sort of like a mantra, you know, every step, every second I counted. And um, I, I did it for the whole summer, you know, th- tens of thousands of steps, but there were two or three instances on that summer that it was incredible. I, I saw the person, me, who was counting, one, two, three. I saw the person in me that was running, breathing. 
I also saw a, a complainer in me that said, oh, you don't need to count. You counted enough. You, you, you give it a break. You don't need to do this. And then on top of that, I saw someone that could appreciate it all. So that concept of the many eyes is a very real experience of me for me. And reading these myths, of course, highlights that, no, that I wasn't crazy. <laughs> I wasn't delusional as I ran. But, but these are real events, and, and others have tried to describe these kind of other awarenesses, these other levels of consciousness. And, mm -hmm. um, and so that, for me, it's been very useful to at least read somebody else trying to describe with great difficulty those kind of events. Mm -hmm. that make sense? Hmm. Um, I'm working at it, <laughs> but yeah, it does. It does. It does. Um, you know, I mean, uh, in, in its simplest form, um, uh, what you and Lloyd discovered, do, do, would you say that you have un, uh, have discovered a level of humanity that isn't, hasn't been discussed before by reading these ancient myths? Um, yeah, think, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's been missed. I think it's been missed. I, I think... Uh, when we when we read about the creation and separating heaven and earth, we you look at those words and we imagine some distant time when there's a you know a, a hot cold planet sort of developing, uh, and 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 yeah, I think we slip into the literal, um, and, and because that's easy, and I'll, I'll, you know uh, that that's fine. You look at Gilgamesh. Oh yeah, he was a big strong guy, and he, he went off and did great things with Enkidu. It's tougher to get to those higher levels of understanding, the levels that Swallow Delubitz mentioned. Mm -hmm. You know, for, for centuries, people had looked at the Sphinx and the pyramids, and, and wow, that's great. But uh, until Swallow was able to, to apply a, a different perspective on, on the, the, well, not just, just construction, but his wife Elsa, on the language, it, they, they were just buildings. They weren't. You know, they didn't convey the same uh, meaning that he was able to come up and, and what right. he does when I read Schwalder Lubitsch is that challenge is, yes, I have to put more into reading these. I, I can't just sit back and, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and dream. I have, to, I have to actually work on sacred geometry. I have to, you know, apply myself to myself, not just to externalize. I guess that's, that's uh, my my interest is that perhaps the ancients uh, understood physiology, human physiology better than we do today. And, and they perhaps needed to be in a state of mind when reading these texts that mm -hmm. maybe uh, shifted consciousness. Uh, mm -hmm. As an example, you cannot be too excited. You, you cannot Mm -hmm. be drinking stimulants. You cannot be upset before you read these myths. Right. And and then in, in the quieted state of mind, when you read through these documents, then a form of meditative consciousness is, is uh, brought forth. What do you think about that idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right on. Uh, if we look at the pyramid text, um, they were they were written on the wall inside walls of, of a pyramid, uh, and at the time of you know the fourth dynasty, uh, twenty five thousand years ago. Um, 
the, the pyramids themselves are always part of a pyramid complex. Uh, there's a point to this, <laughs> if, you give me, if you allow. Um, no, of course. Complex, uh, was is made up of the pyramid, no question. I mean, this big pointy thing with made of huge rocks. But it's also made up of a, an enclosing wall, uh, which surrounded the pyramid. There's a pyramid temple in which you enter the pyramid. There is a long causeway that, again, if you go to Google Earth, you'll see each of the pyramids, most of the pyramids. You can see the causeway that connected the pyramid to the valley temple. And there's a valley temple on the, on the side of, of the Nile. And to get into the pyramid, where, where, where these pyramid texts are written all over the wall, the person, let's say the pharaoh, would have had to start down at the valley temple. He would arrive by boat, most likely. He would have to go through this enclosed causeway, which one can't touch or see at the moment. It, they're long, they're destroyed. So he'd have to go like a, a mile and a half inside this, this enclosed causeway. Uh, and in terms of one of the pyramids, in particular the Pyramid of Unas, there was a slit up the, up the top of the roof of the causeway. So he'd be traveling up this enclosed area, and all he could see above was just a narrow band of the sky. Then he gets to the temple, where I would assume he would do temple-y kind of things before entering the pyramid and going down into the chambers. So absolutely, by the time he was exposed to, to the pyramid text written on the walls, he would have had to do this very extraordinary uh, journey through various uh, physical sites. And I, I mean, of course, he would have to be in a special condition of calm and, and, and um, and preparation before he would even encounter the, the, the texts. And, and I, I, would, I would be sure that that, that that state of preparation would be essential to what he would get over. Have you ever managed to get into one of the pyramids? I, I'm sorry to say, have not been there yet, and i got to get over there. I've been spent most of my time in uh, ancient Central America. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, from everything I've read and what my a number of close friends have des uh, described is some of the, the structures there are so awe-inspiring that uh, you're, you're shifted whether you like it or not. So, <laughs> to, to be in the middle of a pyramid is such a calm and reassuring but earth-shattering place to be in the world. Uh, Lloyd and I have done that a couple of times. and. Uh, so yes, absolutely. That's a special place to be reading it, uh, any kind of book, let alone a book about transformation and, and uh, mysticism and initiation. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're getting close to the, uh, the end of our program here. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, and mm -hmm. you may not be able to address this, but uh, I, I brought it up earlier, but I, I'm just curious that if you and Lloyd, in your research, uh, of these texts, of these myths, uh, were able to get a sense of what the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, these ancient cultures uh, uh, prized in consciousness. Do you think that they, that they understood levels of consciousness as we do today? In other words, uh, we, we have all these electronics that we can measure the state of someone's uh, <laughs> Uh, brain waves in a meditative state uh, as uh, uh, an, an waking state, in a concentration, mm -hmm. and a thinking state. Do you think that the ancients 
understood the importance of this? Yeah, I've been reading a bit on, on obviously people trying to understand brain functioning and whatnot. The Egyptians thought mm-hmm. the heart, the soul of, of a person resided in the heart. Um, I, I, I don't think we're that different from the ancients. I don't think 5,000 years is any time at all in, in the overall development of man. So I think we're, we're almost identical, if not identical. Um, so I, that, I, I see that as positive because I think that allows us to be as, a, as consciously aware and, uh, as they were. Um, I'd have to get into you know, my view of progress and history and engineering to, to try to mm-hmm. give you, uh, you know, a sense of why at the moment we're not as we in the Western civilization are, aren't so attuned to that consciousness as, as they might have been. But I, I've met people in my own life that, that I, I feel, you know, were, were represented a higher level of consciousness that, that, that I normally perceive in. Um, so I, I, don't, I, I don't think they're that different. I think we're the same. I, I, think, I think with effort and energy, uh, we could be quite different. Now, uh, where, where we as a civilization go, Western civilization go, that, that's a bit of a, a challenge. But you mentioned earlier Eastern religions. I, I, there are pockets, I think, of people that know this as well now as they did back then. Mm-hmm. And we just have to, we have to find them. We have to make use of them. We, we have to put that work into ourselves. Okay. Um, I gave you my interpretation of your work, uh, the takeaway, the bottom line. What would you like the reader, both you and Lloyd, to, uh, what would you like the reader to take away uh, from your book? Well, the important thing is that, to stop dismissing ancient writings and myths as fairy tales and approach them as, as, as valuable pieces of our culture that, that can give us some language that, that, as I tried to express, that helps us personally today understand what goes on within us, what can go on within us, where we might be going. Um, uh, we're hoping the book will, will at least open that, that, that option for people so that they can become personally engaged in, 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 in these, these, these myths, these, this literature, so that they might be able to bring that to their own personal development, you know, and, and uh, development of awareness and consciousness and self, you know, with the capital S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hidden in plain view comes to mind. I mean, what what we're finding is not that it's you know it's not esoteric in the in the sense that it's uh, locked away in a you know a lead container somewhere. It's it's just that we don't know how we to approach them in a way that that we could actually make use of it. And uh, um, uh, obviously, we it's only one book, so we're just sort of introducing that that idea that hopefully will allow other people to, to go back to some of the, the literature they're aware of. And it doesn't have to be Egyptian or Sumerian. I think there's many other, uh, you know, the Buddhist texts and, and whatnot that, that, that could, be, could address this, uh, this desire for improvement. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, this, this dismissal thing of, wow, you know, and, yeah, that, again, naked people in the garden and a snake. Yeah, that, 
you can tell that tale over and over again, but okay, well, what does it really mean? And, and how can I use it today as I, as I talk to Cliff on the phone, <laughs> that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm. Um, I'm not sure you can answer this last question, but I'm going to ask it anyhow. Do you, do you think our, sure. uh, after your research, you, you, you and Lloyd wrote, wrote this, this book, do you think our current, uh, uh, Evolution, our, our, where we're going right now as a as a highly civilized uh, culture is on a on a correct path uh, to higher consciousness, or do you think we need to make adjustments so that we continue as a as a sophisticated society, but maybe we look to the inner self through meditative practice, through reading myths, through whatever. Mm-hmm. To uh, have more of a uh, of, of the human equation involved with all this, all this high technology. Yeah, where is high technology taking us? Um, uh, you're certainly aware of uh, Gobekli Tepe, right? Uh, oh yeah, uh, you spoke about it many times. Right. Uh, one of the the most intriguing pieces of that 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 site for me is and i haven't been there yet is is the fact that it was built by hunter gatherers and i again one of the misconceptions i'd always been given is that well hunter gatherers were poor measly uh, you know died young i've been reading a bit recently that that may not have been the case and that hunter gatherers were a very powerful culture, i.e. they could build something out of megalithic stones in Gobekli Tepe 10,000 years ago, which is 5,000 years before the Sumerian myths I'm talking about. So uh, at the moment, I'm I'm, I'm questioning even whether agriculture and settlements are as uh, as, uh, necessary for human development as I've been taught. Um, definitely, we live in a city uh, in a system that you know possessions. We own the land, and we have to own the land to grow food. Whereas hunter gatherers, uh, at a different time in, in in the history of the world, with fewer people and all that, uh, it intrigues me that hunter gatherers could be as successful in managing to move megalithic stones and carving and whatnot. So uh, I'm not going to make any prediction of where we're going, but. Uh, I think there are other opportunities, other ways of looking at life that that maybe don't, uh, you know, include car um, uh, cars and and traffic jams and, and stress and all that. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there was a book by uh, on the Okinawa people in Japan. They're some of the oldest living people as a culture uh, still in the world. And and uh, one of the final chapters says that one of the key pieces of the success of that culture and their aging is that. Apparently, they all get together to watch the sunset every evening. And I don't know that. I, mean, I can't, can't, can't imagine that, but it's intriguing to think that a sunset would be more valuable than a six-figure salary. Um, I see uh, my answer to your question is quite, quite broad. I, I don't know, but uh, I think we have to look a, a lot broader than whether you know, another spaceship is going to, to take us anywhere. Mm-hmm. That Interesting. Get yeah, fantastic. 
Um, <laughs> the book is uh, Awakening Higher Consciousness, Guidance from Ancient Egypt and Sumer. And my guest today has been uh, Paul Bedrew. And he co-wrote the book with Lloyd Dickey. And um, I guess it, it just it came out uh, a few weeks ago. And I know it's yeah. on... Uh, Amazon is it uh, is it available uh, in digital form on Amazon yet? Do you know? Yep, the ebook is out there. Um, hard oh, the ebook, okay. Okay. And we've got a lot Excellent. of stuff online. If people are interested, they can do a Google or Bing search for Ahiko uh, A W H I C O. The first two letters of Awakening Higher Consciousness A W H I C O. And uh, we've got Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn. We've got our own website at uh, awhico.com. And we've posted a few okay. blogs that, that explore some of the topics we've gone through today. And, uh, of course, you know, we'd love, love to hear from you. Uh, uh, the contact are online with, the, with the, the various social media tools. Um, okay. Yeah. And are you guys uh, going to be speaking anywhere you want to post to let us know about any – conferences that people can attend um, coming up that uh, where you talk a little bit about awaken higher consciousness not um, at the moment we're just uh, okay. we're just getting settled with uh, with getting the books okay. and uh, and uh, we'll have to see later in the in the in the summer I'm planning a, a ride down a motorcycle ride down to the states and who knows what's going to come out of that <laughs> okay <laughs> that sounds good well I'll definitely post um, Definitely post your website on our um, Facebook page and with a couple of photographs from the book. Um, and um, best of luck to you. I, I think that you've probably triggered the beginning of uh, uh, a continual exploration on the subject. And um, look forward to, to seeing and uh, reading more about your work, your future work. That's great. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, Cliff. I hope I made some sense, and uh, yeah, uh, that's what we're all about: is uh, promoting additional work. It's never going to be over. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fine, it's a fantastic uh, look at uh, uh, mythology, and um, uh, I think it has a, an important place. And I encourage my audience to to definitely take a look at it. So, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. All right. So. Uh, that is uh, Paul Bedrew, and that is a, a great book. Uh, again, Hi Awakening Higher Consciousness. Um, and uh, check it out. Um, I actually got from the publisher an early digital version, which um, I'm beginning to enjoy. I, uh, it took me a while to um, get into digital books because they don't obviously move the same way as as pages, it's a <laughs> you, you have to click a pointer to get to each page. But uh, the, the material is the same, and um, uh, it is an interesting read. Okay, next week my uh, guest is uh, Ram Ad Flem, who has written a book on Moses. If you remember, Ram uh, is the author of a book on uh, Atlantis, his early book was fascinating. This book is by Rose Ann Ranflem on, um, on uh, the story of Moses and how he died, and I think it's a very interesting uh, subject. As always, I encourage you to take a look at our Facebook page. Uh, I will be posting uh, some photos, as I mentioned, uh, from um, Awakening Higher Consciousness, guidance from ancient Egypt and Sumer. 
um, as well as uh, each day there's something new in, uh, to post and um, uh, so always take a look at it it's uh, Facebook Earth Ancients and also I encourage you to t take a look at uh, the blog page which has uh, a lot of original writing uh, my own points of view as well as those of the over 10,000 members so uh, have a look at that uh, on Facebook uh, I'm hoping for the Earth Ancients website to be up in uh, a few weeks we're getting down to the final uh, bits and pieces of uh, intricate website um, so I will be announcing that and that site will be very sophisticated with uh, photographs of my own as well as a number of contributing uh, photographers, uh, scientists and writers and uh, research investigators. So uh, be looking forward to that. And again, I'll mention that again uh, in, the, in the coming days. Have a great day. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.